I've been telling everybody who will listen that I feel like we're in the middle of a significant spike in technological capability right now. And so if you're not doing that, you're missing out on being at the forefront of something that's substantially changing what humans are able to do. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Jeremy Howard is the founding researcher at Fast.ai, which is a research institute dedicated to making deep learning more accessible. They make an incredible Python repository that people use for lots and lots of deep learning projects. And they make an incredible set of classes that many people I know have taken and is almost universally loved. He was also the CEO and founder of Analytic, the president of Kaggle, and has done a whole bunch of diverse, amazing things in his career. It's always super inspiring to talk to Jeremy, and this interview is no different. I really hope you enjoy it. You are the first person to be on this podcast two times, and I think you are the most popular guest um, that, that we've right. had based on our YouTube metrics, so it's great to have you. Um, and I guess, um, you know, I wanted to start with actually the most memorable part of our interview for, for me personally was um, the amount of time that you set aside every day to to work on just learning and just said like undirected sort of learning new things, which I really thought was an amazing thing that I, I always aspire to do more of. But I was curious, um, lately, what have you been learning? Um, I'm spending all my spare time at the moment on generative modeling around the kind of stable diffusion or diffusion modeling space. Um, uh, hence, hence the new course, I guess. Is that yeah, it's part a of the learning bit process? Of a chicken and the egg thing. It's partly the new course is because of the learning, and partly the learning is because of the new course. Um, I've been telling everybody who will listen that I feel like we're in the middle of a significant spike in technological capability right now. And so if you're not doing that, you're you're missing out on being at the forefront of something that's substantially changing what humans are able to do. Um, and so when there's such a technological shift, it creates all kinds of opportunities for, for startups and for scientific progress and also op opportunities to screw up society, um, which hopefully you can figure out how to avoid and stuff like that. So I'm very keen to do what I can to be on the forefront of that and to help others who are interested in, in doing the same thing. And when you say spike, do you mean diffusion models specifically, or do you mean machine learning more broadly? Do you mean like- I mean diffusion models specifically. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's a, a simple but profound insight, which is that um, it's very difficult for a model to generate something creative and aesthetic and correct from nothing or from nothing but a prompt or a question or whatever. Um, and the profound insight is to say, well, given that that's hard, why don't we not ask a model to do that directly, but why don't we train a model to do something a little bit better than nothing? And then make a model that if we run it multiple times, takes the thing that's a little bit better than nothing and makes that a little bit better still and a little bit better still. 
And so if you run the model multiple times, as long as it's capable of improving the previous output each time, then it's just a case of running it lots of times. And that's the insight behind diffusion models. Um, as you'd be well aware, Lucas, it's not a new insight. It's the same basic insight that all that that belongs to this class of models called boosted models. So boosted models are when you train a model to fix a previous model, to find its errors and reduce them. And so we use lots of boosted models. Gradient boosting machines in particular are particularly popular, but you, any, any model can be turned into a boosted model by training it to fix the previous model's errors. But yeah, we haven't really done that in generative models before, and we now have a whole infrastructure for how to do it well. And the interesting thing is that having started to get deep into the area, I've realized we're not close at all to doing that in an optimal way. So the fantastic results you're seeing at the moment are based on what in a year's time or, you know, or two will be considered extremely primitive approaches. Could you say a little more about that? Um, sure. So broadly speaking, we're looking to create a function that if we apply it to an input, it returns a better version of that input. So for example, if we're trying to create a picture that represents a cute photo of a teddy bear, then we want a function that takes anything that's not yet a really great cute photo of a teddy bear and makes it something a little bit more like a cute photo of a teddy bear than what it started with. And furthermore, that can take the output of a previous version of running this model and run it again to create something that's even more like a cute version of a teddy bear. Um, it's a little harder than it first sounds because of this problem of um, uh, out of distribution inputs. The thing is, if, if the result of running the model once is something that does look a little bit more like a teddy bear, that output needs to be valid as input to running the model again. Um, other, you know, if, if, it's, if it's not something the model's been trained to recognize, it's not going to do a good job. So the, the tricky way that current approaches generally do that is that they, um, they basically do the same thing that we taught in our 2018-2019 course, which is what we call crapification, um, which is to take a, a perfectly good image and make it crappy. In the course, what we did was we added JPEG noise to it and reduced its resolution and scrolled text over the top of it. The approach that's used today is actually much more rigorous, but in some ways less flexible, it's to um, sprinkle Gaussian noise all over it. So basically add or subtract random numbers for every pixel. And the key thing is then that one step of inference, so making it slightly more like a cute teddy bear, is basically to do your best to create a cute teddy bear and then sprinkle a whole bunch of noise back onto the pixels but a bit less noise than you had before. And so that's, by definition, at least going to be pretty close to being in distribution in the sense that you train a model that learns to take pictures which have varying amounts of noise sprinkled over them and to remove that noise. So yeah, so you can just add a bit less noise. 
and then you run the model again and add a bit of noise back, but a bit less noise, and then run the model again and add a bit of noise back, but a bit less noise, and so forth. So it's really neat, but it's like a lot of it's done this way because of kind of theoretical convenience, I guess, and it's worked really well because we can use that theoretical convenience to figure out like what good hyperparameters are and you know, get a lot of the details working pretty well. Um, but there's totally different ways you can do things, and you can see like even in the last week, there's been two very significant papers that have dramatically improved the state of the art, um, both of which um, don't run the same model each time during this boosting phase, during this diffusion phase, but they have different models for different amounts of noise, um, or there are some which will have like super resolution stages, so you're basically creating something smaller and then making it bigger, and you have different models for those. Um, basically what I think, yeah, what, what we're starting to see is like that gradual move away from the stuff that's theoretically convenient to stuff that like is more flexible, has more fiddly hyperparameters to tune, but then people spending more time tuning those hyperparameters, creating more complex um, mixture of experts or ensembles. Um, and I think, yeah, there's going to be a lot more of that happening. And also the the biggest piece, I think, will be this whole question of like, well, how do we use them with humans in the loop most effectively? Because like, you know, the purpose of these is to create stuff. And currently it's like, it's almost an accident that we can ask for a photo of a particular kind of thing, you know, like a cute teddy bear. Um, the, the models are trained with what's called conditioning, where they're conditioned on these captions, but like the captions are known to be wrong because they come from the alt tags in HTML web pages. And those alt tags are very rarely accurate descriptions of pictures. So the whole thing, you know, and then the way the conditioning's done is kind of really got nothing to do with actually trying to create something that will respond to prompts. So the prompts themselves are a bit of an accident and the conditioning is kind of a bit of an accident. So the fact that we can use prompts at all, it's a bit of an accident. And as a result, it's a huge art right now to figure out like how, you know, trending on ArtStation, 8K, ultra-realistic, you know, portrait of Lucas Beewald looking thoughtful or whatever. There's whole books, you know, of like, here's lots of prompts we tried and here's what the outputs look like. And then how do you like, customize that because actually, you know, you're trying to create a a storybook about, you know, Lucas Beewald's uh, uh, progress in creating a new startup and you want, you know, you want it to fit into this particular box here and you want a picture of a robot in the background there and, you know, like how do you get, you know, the same style, the same character content, the particular composition. You know, it's all about this interaction between human and machine. There's so many things, you know, which we're just starting to understand how to do. Um, and so in the coming years, I think it will turn into a powerful tool for, you know, computer-assisted human creativity rather than what it is now, which is more of a hand something off to the machine and hope that it's useful. Do you think the same approach applies across domains or is there something about images, the way it's sort of obvious how to add noise and 
mm-hmm. maybe the data set that that we have. I mean, certainly the way you described diffusion, you could there's a natural application of that to almost any domain. But Correct. I guess Gaussian noise on text, it's a little unclear to me like what that what that really means. So last week a paper showing diffusion for text came out. Uh, there's already diffusion models for like proteins. Um, there's already diffusion models for audio. The audio ones uh, use, or uh, well, some of them use a fairly hacky, obvious, but neat approach of using diffusion to generate spectrograms, which are images, and then having something like a super resolution model, but it's not doing super resolution, it's doing spectrogram to, to, to sound. Um, so yeah, these things are already starting to exist. They haven't had as much resources put into them yet, so they're still not that great. But yeah, that's the thing, Lucas. This is not just for images at all. Um, it'll you know it'll be for used in medicine. It'll be used in copywriting. I mean, you know, the 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 way we currently do generative text models again, it's kind of a happy accident. So when I did ULM fit, the whole reason I created a, a language model was for the purpose of fine-tuning it to create a classifier, you know. And GPT then that took that idea and scaled it up with transformers, um, you know, what Alec Radford was trying to do there was not generate text, but trying to solve other problems by fine-tuning it. There was this kind of discovery almost with GPT-3 that when you take this and you scale it far enough, it actually starts generating reasonable-sounding text. Um, but the text is not necessarily correct. In fact, it's very often wildly incorrect. And so, yeah, you know, intentionally working on text generation approaches, which are specifically designed for generating text, is something that there's a lot of room to improve. And generally speaking, the way I see it is this, is you've got a generative model that's trying to do something difficult, and it's pretty good at it, or at least better than nothing. It'll be better at it if you can do it in a way that it runs multiple times during inference because you're giving it more opportunities to do its thing. Um, so I think, you know, that means that these multi-step inference models, you know, which may or may not be diffusion models, but kind of boosted generative models uh, are here to stay because no matter how good your model, generative model is, you can always make it better if you can find a way to write, write it multiple times. I guess that is a good segue to another question I had, which is, um, I think one of the really fun things about deep learning in the early days was it was so um, tangible. And you had, you know, you have this fantastic class where you can just kind of, you know, build these models and see how they work and and play with them. And so I think we both have a very similar learning approach. But one thing I've personally been struggling with, honestly, with these bigger models is just actually like engaging with them in a meaningful way. Like, you know, it's it's fun to run the various like image generating models, but um, it feels kind of daunting. I'm not sure I have the the money myself to buy the compute to like make one that um, really works. We actually had one person on this podcast who did it for fun, Boris, which is a super fun episode. And I felt really jealous of, of how much fun he had building it. But I'm curious how you turn that problem into something um, like tractable that you can actually engage with. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, remember Boris is one of our alumni. He's part of our fast AI community. Um, and he showed what is possible for a single tenacious person to do. Although I think um, Google like donated 
like a hundred thousand dollars to compute them. So it wasn't yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> if you can show that you're doing useful work, then there's plenty of compute out there which you can get donated to. But having said that, you know, he, he what he was largely trying to do, at least at the outset, was to replicate, you know, what OpenAI had done. I take a very different approach, which is I always assume that the best thing out there right now is far short of what the best thing could be, you know, that in five to 10 years time, there'll be something better. And I always look for improving that. So, um, yeah, so you should take our new course, uh, Lucas, um, I would love we, to. Know, which we're in the middle of, um, because um, what I've been working on is exactly what you described, which is how to train and play with a state-of-the-art image generative model in a notebook on a single GPU. And as with all of these things, the trick is to start with an easier but equivalent problem. So uh, I'm doing all my work just about uh, on the Fashion MNIST dataset, um, which rather than being 512 by 512 pixel images of literally anything in the world, including artworks, um, they're, 20, uh, they're, they're three channel. Uh, Fashion MNIST is 28 by 28 single channel images of one of 10 types of clothing. Um, now, I always tell people, like whether you're doing a Kaggle competition or a, or a project at work or whatever, the most important two steps are to create a rapid feedback loop where you can iterate and test fast and to have a test which is highly correlated with the final thing you're going to be doing. So that if you have those two things, you can quickly try lots of ideas and see if they're probably going to work, you know, on the bigger data set or the bigger, harder problem or whatever. So it turns out Fashion MNIST, basically, yeah, I've kind of like replicated a bunch of different approaches from the literature. On Fashion MNIST, the relative effectiveness of those different approaches on Fashion MNIST mirrors basically exactly their relative effectiveness on Coco or ImageNet or Lion or whatever. Yeah, cool. um, but I can train a model on a single GPU to a point where I can see relative differences in about two minutes. Wow. Um, and that means I can, yeah, like very rapidly try things. And so I've started, yeah, building notebooks where I show every single little step. And also it helps a lot to use notebooks, which almost nobody working in the generative modeling field seems to be doing at the moment. So what they do is they have, you know, the normal approach is to, you know, do ImageNet 64 pixel or, you know, SciFar 32 pixel, which is still better than doing 512 by 512 Lion, but it still takes, you know, ImageNet 64 pixel takes many hours on an eight GPU machine. Um, you can't do a fast iteration loop, you know? Um, so yeah, in a notebook, you know, I can like run a single iteration of diffusion. I can see what the outputs look like because the pictures are all there in front of me. You know, if you're not using this kind of approach, instead you're switching back and forth between a terminal and then you need some way of actually viewing the images. And given that you're probably not sitting directly on that eight GPU box, you're probably SSHing into it. So you've got to find a way to show those pictures. Um, there are ways, by the way, of showing pictures in the terminal. For example, if you use iTerm2, there's something called ImageCat, 
Um, if you use other terminals, <coughs> they probably support something called Sixel, Sixel Graphics. Um, but there's, you know, they're not going to be as a good a exploration environment for this kind of stuff than a notebook is. Um, so yeah, I think there's lots of opportunities for, you know, people like you and me to play in this field. I mean, I, I know there is because I've, you know, started spending time talking to some of the folks who were the primary researchers responsible for the key components of stable diffusion. And I'm already telling them things that they hadn't thought of before by virtue of weird little experiments I've done with Fashion MNIST on my single GPU Jupyter Notebook. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, a fast feedback loop is so important. I mean, it's, that's right. very cool. I was curious broadly if you have thoughts on stable diffusion in general. I feel like, you know, we're, we're sitting here in November, you know, 2022, and I think they've done an amazing job of bringing awareness to to generative models. Um, I don't know. What do you what do you think about stable diffusion? I mean, it's it's um, it's been great for for progress in the field. Clearly, yeah. I mean, um, uh, generally speaking, I'm all about democratization and accessibility, as you know. Um, I I don't love the fact that before Stable Diffusion was released, you know, a small number of people in the world had access to the full generative models, and then other people could, like, pay for cut-down versions of them, use them in small quantities. Um, the thing is, accessing these things through a a web-based API is extremely limiting. You know, when you've actually got the weights, you can really play with both the engineering and the artistic side of doing things that no one's done before. Um, so yeah, I think that's great. I think it's important. Um, I think, you know, as with any of these things, you release a new powerful technology out there and a whole bunch of people are going to be using it for, you know, not necessarily the things that you would have chosen to use it for. So for example, for Stable diffusion, it seems like a very large percentage of people who are using it uh, to generate lots and lots of images are doing it to generate anime and specifically nearly entirely, you know, um, uh, very young women with very few clothes on anime pictures. Um, and I'm sure there are people out there who are taking the clothes off entirely, you know. Um, so th that's, I mean, that happens, I guess, with any technology and I don't necessarily have, I mean, you can't, I guess you can't stop that happening. Um, but we certainly need appropriate laws around at least, you know, making illegal things, make sure that things that are, we don't want to be legal are in fact illegal. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are obviously huge benefits and you're not going to get stuff like, you know, protein diffusion models or, you know, pharmaceutical diffusion models or, you know, none of those are going to develop if the technology is in the hands of like two or three big organizations. Um, so it's certainly a very valuable step on the whole for society to have this stuff as open as possible. And to be clear, it was, it was all trained at universities, you know, so the one, the main one, most of the stuff we're using now for stable diffusion is trained in, in Germany at German academic institutions um, using donated hardware. I guess it's interesting, though, that um, it was, I think, primarily 
ethics and AI considerations that you know made folks like OpenAI kind of restrict access to their models, or at least that's what they said. Do you think that you would know a priori that that was like the the wrong thing to do? Were you would, would so you push against that? Actually, I actually read a blog post about that back in when GPT three was first like announced and not released, mm-hmm. and nearly universally the feedback, at least in the AI community, was, oh, this is lame, they're just doing it for profits. And in my blog post, I said, like, well, not necessarily, you know, like, there are genuine things to be thinking about here. Um, Which is not to say that that means that the motivation wasn't at least partially profit-driven. It might well have been. Like, it's certainly convenient that the ethical considerations read in this way entirely align with profit-driven motives as well. Um, but like I say, it doesn't necessarily mean they're not true. And I'm pretty sure it's for both reasons. And if you look at the way OpenAI has behaved since then, they've behaved in a way that is very increasingly apparently profit-driven. So I'm less generous in my interpretation now than I was then based on their continuing patterns of behavior. Um, and I think also with the benefit of hindsight, it feels a lot more like, you know, in the last couple of years, companies keeping models to themselves, the main impact that seems to have been is to create a bigger bifurcation between haves and have-nots in terms of capability, um, requiring more researchers to pay for API access to do things. Uh, a decreased amount of openness and in fact even you know what could be argued as being kind of deceitful behavior uh, so like for example we now know that the open AI models that you can pay to access are actually not the same as what's been described in their research papers and we've now had dozens of people write research papers comparing various work to the open AI models and now we learn that actually we're not comparing to what we thought we were comparing it at all and you know thousands of hours of researcher time being wasted and papers being published with what turns out now to actually be totally wrong information in um so yeah i'm i'm definitely you know more enthusiastic about the idea of being open than perhaps more confident about that than i was a couple of years ago and I guess, do you have thoughts on the language side of things, like large language models? Like, do you um, do you think that, for example, do you think that prompt engineering um, is headed to be like an important way of doing um, machine learning? Like, you know, you do see these models doing incredibly well in like a wide variety of um, NLP tasks, like better than models, you know, trained specifically on these specific tasks sometimes. Yeah, I think... Generative text models have both more opportunities and more threats than generative image models, um, for sure. Like I say, they're kind of the fact that they work at all is in some ways a bit of an accident. They're far, far, far from being optimized for, for purpose at the moment. Um, but they're already amazingly good, particularly if you do this kind of stuff where, I mean, literally there are now dozens of papers just look at like what kind of prompts happen to work on these models that we kind of accidentally made generative models with, you know, let's think step by step and 
whatever else. Um, we're starting to find ways to actually get them to do a little bit more of what we actually want them to do, but so far using really, really basic things like, you know, all this uh, instruction tuning. So, you know, rather than just feeding it the entire internet, let's actually fine tune it with some examples of things that are actually correct. <laughs> you know, and actually represent outputs that we would want for these inputs rather than just whatever somebody rando wrote on the internet 25 years ago. Um, yeah, so my worry is, my, I'm much more worried about misuse of text models and image models because it wouldn't be at all hard to create a million Twitter or Facebook or whatever accounts uh, and program them to work together to impact the kind of world's discourse in very substantial ways over time. Um, and nobody would know, you know, so we, we could have like, you know, like on, on, on Twitter, for example, some, you know, fairly small number of accounts, um, often where nobody actually knows the human who's behind it can have very substantive effects on like what people are talking about and how do people talk about that thing. Um, and so imagine, yeah, um, a million of, uh, of those accounts, which were actually bots that had been trained to be more compelling than humans, which, which already for years we've had bots, which humans rank as more compelling than actual humans. Um, and that they've been trained to work together, you know, take alternate points of view in exactly the right way. And, um, this bot gradually gets convinced by that bot and whatever else, like, yeah, it, it, it could cause a very small number of people in the world to programmably decide how they want humanity to think about a topic and pay to make that happen. Although if I, if I remember right, it seemed like all of fast AI's like sort of broad mandate was to basically make a no code interface into machine learning so anyone could access it. And it does sort of seem like prompt engineering to the extent that it works is like a huge step in that direction. Is isn't right. it? Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like that's why I said it's like both like got more opportunities and more threats. So yeah, the opportunities are are vast to you know, so take for example the recent um Thing that was released like last week or so, uh, explainpaper.com, where our students are already, you know, so with our course, we do, you know, look at a paper or two each week. And so, and so last week I <coughs> told, told the class's homework to re-implement the diff edit paper. And so students are saying like, oh, I didn't understand this paragraph. So I highlighted it in explainpaper.com and here's the summary it gave. And that's a lot more clear now. And then I tried to understand that bit. So I asked for more information. You know, this is very, very valuable. And, um, you know, I saw somebody on Twitter a couple of days ago saying they don't really use Stack Overflow anymore because they created this tiny little simple little script called ask where they type ask and then something at a prompt at, sorry, at a, at a, um, in the bash, you know, shell REPL and it would feed that off to OpenAI GPT-3 and return back the result. And they basically use that instead of searching the internet nowadays. Wow. Um, so yeah, people are definitely using this stuff and it's going to get much, much better. Do you have a clever way, like with fashion MNIST and image generation to play with 
large language models on kind of a bite-sized scale? Um, not yet. No. Um, I uh, some you know, I'll get to that maybe in a, another part of the course. I guess it's a uh, definitely a great question and something to think about. Interesting. Okay. Um, a question that I need to revisit because this was unexpectedly, I think, one of the reasons that um, so many people listened to my interview with you last time. You sort of made an interesting comment that you felt like Python wasn't the future of ML, and you sort of said maybe Julia is the um, is the future of ML, and that really seemed to like strike a chord with the internet um, everywhere. I think it's kind of the most discussed part of great sense yeah. of, of all time. So I'm just curious, do you have any more? Um, thoughts on that like i i um do you do you sort of still believe that like julia is the future you're sort of on the fence about that um i mean i was i was on the fence about that last time we spoke and totally i i would say i'm a a little less bullish than i was then because i just i i feel like the julia ecosystem and culture, you know, it's so focused on these like HPC kind of like huge compute running things on national labs machines. And it's all stuff that's very appealing to engineers. It feels good, but it's a, it's a, such a tiny audience, you know, and it's not a, like, it's not, I don't care about whether I can run something on 5,000 nodes. Um, sure. I just want to run it on my laptop and it's still not great for running on my laptop really. And it's not great for creating software that I can send you. I can't, you know, if I created a little CLI tool or whatever, well, it's not great for creating little CLI tools because it's so slow to start up. And then how the hell am I going to send it to you to try out? You'd be like, okay, Lucas, well, install the entirety of Julia and then run the REPL and then type this to go into package management mode. And, and then, okay. And, now you've got this thing and now you can run it. It's like, okay, that's not going to happen. Or, you know, even just deploying a website, you know, it's a lot of fuss and bother and it uses more resources than it should. Um, it's still got that potential, but, you know, I, I guess the other thing that's become more clear though in the last couple of years is their grand experiment on type dispatch it, it 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 is more challenging to get that all working properly than perhaps I had realized because it's still not really quite all working properly. And I think good on them for trying to make it work properly. It's a it's a vast research project. Um, but you know, there's a lot of weird little edge cases, and trying to make that all run smoothly is incredibly challenging. So, I I suspect. Um, yeah, something needs to replace Python, but maybe it's something that doesn't exist yet. Um, partly, though, I mean, so what we're seeing instead, everybody knows we have to replace Python. So what instead's been happening is we're using Python to create non-Python artifacts. So most obviously, Jax, you know, Jax uses Python or a subset of Python with a kind of a embedded DSL written as a library, which only lets you create things that can be expressible as, as XLA programs. And then XLA compiles that, um, to run fast on a GP, on a TPU. Um, and that works pretty well, 
Um, it's very challenging though for for research or hacking or learning or whatever because because it's actually not Python that's running at all. So it's extremely difficult to like profile and debug and so forth that code. Um, very hard to kind of run it in a you know really nicely in notebooks. Um, so like in our little team working on diffusion models, we kind of all want to use Jax, but every time we try, it's always like, because like everything I write is always wrong the first 14 times. And with Python, you know, I, I have 14 goes at making it better by like finding all the stupid things I did by running one line at a time and checking things and looking at pictures. With Jax, I wouldn't know how to fix my broken code, really. It's, it's difficult. But you don't so, think that that yeah. flexibility is like fundamentally in conflict with making a language performant? Like I think uh, we covered this last time. It is for Python, I think. Yeah. So for Python, like that flexibility is to be able to actually run it as Python code. Um, so like if you look at where PyTorch is going now, they've got this uh, Torch Dynamo stuff. Uh, where they're working, you know, they're basically, you know, can interface with NVFuser and you can interface with um, Triton, the um, the OpenAI uh, compiler-ish thing. I'm not exactly sure what you'd call it. Um, and so clearly PyTorch is heading the same direction as Jax, which is if you want it to run fast, you'll use Torch Dynamo or whatever it ends up being called. That's That's actually now, you know, integrated into the PyTorch tree. That's clearly where we're heading. And again, you end up with, you know, probably you'll be using Triton. So you end up, you know, Triton's amazing, super cool, super fantastic. But, you know, you still end up with this thing that's running compiled code. It's not the same code you wrote, but a, a version of it. Um, again, difficult, more difficult to hack on. Yes. I think, you know, if you look at how this works, you know, there's a whole world of, of software that's written in languages which are explicitly designed to work this way. They're compiled languages, you know, like languages like C++ and Swift and Rust. And they have something very nice, which is they have flags you can pass the compiler. So you can pass the, the D flag to run it in the debugger, or you can pass the O flag to run it, you know, the optimized version. And so basically you get to choose how close the code that's actually running is to the actual lines of code that you wrote. So that for debugging, you can actually, you know, it'll run slower, but it's actually running the lines of code that you wrote. Um, and I think we want something like that, something that, yeah, it, it looks like Python, it's pretty compatible with Python, but, you know, you can still run it as Python, but you can also run it in an optimized way. You know, maybe something that actually takes better advantage of these kind of type hints that we can provide. Um, yeah, I, I, that's that's my guess is what's going to happen is we'll see Python-esque languages. You know, we'll continue to see these Python-esque languages appear that may begin to look less and less like pure Python and, you know, are designed to work better and better with these back-end uh, linear algebra accelerators and compilers. Is there some language out there right now that that has that feel for you? No, they're all, 
they're all basically these embedded DSLs, you know, like TVM or like Halide. Um, you know, we have the MLIR, you know, project, which is kind of providing the back end needed for these kinds of things. And, you know, Chris Latner has a new company, which, you know, presumably going to be placed better than any other to create what we need for this kind of thing. Um, and so he's the guy behind MLIR. Yeah, but it, it feels like a, a big open area to me at the moment. Interesting. Okay, on a totally different topic that I, I kind of can't believe we didn't cover last time. I feel like we must have been right in the middle of it. Um, you know, I think I, along with many other people in the world, sort of watched you um, kind of advocate for wearing masks in the early days of um, COVID. And, you know, I think you had one of the most, I mean, some of the most like, you know, high profile like articles on this, like the second most popular article on like free print. print. And I'm just kind of curious um, if you could sort of tell that story from your perspective and maybe, you know, like what you were seeing that other people were were missing and how you're kind of approaching that problem differently? I mean, it's, it's hard for me, Lucas, because like, I don't understand why, and I still don't understand why it's not reasonably obvious to everybody, like what what's everybody else missing and why? Because like to me, from my point of view, well, okay, so like, let me go back. So February, 2020, you know, mid-ish February, 2020, like February, 2020, um, I, I had a course coming up at the University of San Francisco that I was going to be teaching. And I had heard, you know, increasing chatter about this, whatever, Chinese virus thing. Um, and I guess, you know, when I, what then happened was it hit Italy and there was a lot more information in English about what was happening in Italy than there was what was happening in China. So it suddenly was much more accessible to see what was going on, you know, particularly because a lot of the Italian doctors or whatever were actually on Twitter and stuff, so I could read what was happening. And that, you know, a whole bunch of people were saying like, you know, this is a disaster, you know, the, I can't remember what it was, like the president of the you know, main Italian medical body just died of COVID and, you know, there's not enough hospital beds and, um, and then I knew it had kind of just, I think, starting to get detected in New York. And I thought, oh, well, it seems like it might be quite likely to come here. What does that mean for our course? You know, <laughs> it's very, like, not at all altruistic. Just very, like, are we still going to do our course? So my wife and I kind of started reading about it to try to figure out what should happen with the course. And as we did, we were, yeah, it's like very obvious that it was going to be a global pandemic and it was going to sweep through San Francisco within weeks. And so like within two days, I guess I wrote an email to everybody who had registered, you know, I think registered to the course and put, you know, put out a blog post and said, we're not doing the course, um, live. We're going to do it virtually. Um, this is well before, uh, you know, our university or I think any university had decided to do that, which again, I already thought was weird. Like I thought like, okay, it's not yet here, but obviously it's going to be. So why are people acting as if it's not going to be? And so, yeah, Rachel and I ended up writing a long blog post, you know, cause we were kind of like, okay, it's not just our course. It's like, we know we've got all these friends in San Francisco who are doing things that 
we're pretty sure they're going to look back on in hindsight and think well, that's a terrible idea because I put myself and my community at risk. And so we said, like, okay, here, you know, we had, didn't know much about it. So we just said, look, as data scientists, here's what we can see so far in the data. You know, it does seem to grow exponentially, at least at first. And, you know, this is the impact it's been having in Lombardy. And um, here's the early impact in New York. And here's, like, how the math of these kinds of, you know, things work. And so here's, like, not just a prediction, but an almost certainty as to what's going to happen here. And that got a lot of attention. And we had no idea how to avoid it ourselves. Uh, we were worried that, like, historically... You know, when there is global pandemics, it can lead to it can lead to violence, it can lead to societal disharmony, whatever. So we we decided to get out of San Francisco for a while. We also it was clear that it was going to be there was going to be a lockdown at some point because, you know, I mean, why wouldn't there be? Again, none of our friends seem to believe any of this is going to happen. It's really I thought it was weird. You know, like it just seemed very obvious. And then yeah, there was a lockdown like a week or two later. We're told. Our daughter's school. So like, oh, that's probably going to be a lockdown. They, you know, sent back this rather annoyed email about interrupting learning or something. Um, yeah, and so the schools were closed for a year in the end in San Francisco. So then we were like, oh, well, how do we, yeah, how do we, like, not get COVID? Because um, we probably don't want to get COVID because it seems like getting COVID can be bad. We started to hear from people who would, like, you know, saying maybe there could be longer-term implications of some of these kinds of SARS viruses. So I started looking into, like, how it was spread, and I discovered that there's all these countries around China that had avoided getting hit by COVID, and particularly Hong Kong. was like, literally a train line away from Wuhan. And that just seems amazing, you know. And that's when I discovered that, like, Mongolia, Taiwan, and Hong Kong all had this kind of you know, either universal mask policy or universal mask usage, um, kind of culturally. And I thought, oh, that's weird. Because I thought masks were this kind of like weird thing that, I don't know, for some reason you go to Chinatown, you see people wearing masks, and I was like, that's, that's weird. You know, <laughs> I didn't have too much notice of it. But then as I, yeah, started learning it was this respiratory, you know, infection, and um, it's kind of seemed to make sense. And so I read something in the... Um, Washington Post talking about how in the Czech Republic, particularly the populace had independently decided to wear masks, you know, heavily driven by a kind of a popular science YouTuber. Um, and basically, yeah, within like three or four days, you know, the whole country had made enough masks for everybody and their president was like talking about how proud he was and um, and their, again, their like infection was going, rate was going the opposite direction to other countries. So I thought that was interesting. So yeah, I kind of read an article about that. And then I talked to a guy who used to be very, you know, high up in the government on the science policy side. And I asked him what's going on with masks. And he said like, well, you know, nobody thinks there's very convincing science about it. So he said, if you want to convince people to wear masks, then you'd need to, you know, find some better science. So I contacted basically the 18 smartest scientific researchers I knew. Um, you know, everybody from, from Lex Friedman to Zainab Tufekci and said, 
you know, not just scientific researchers, in Dana's case, sociological researcher that said, like, you want to help me put together the evidence. So that's where our paper came from. Um, basically, everybody said yes. They all agreed. So suddenly we had this huge author group. So we kind of set up a Slack channel and, um, and yeah, none of us like had a really strong opinion going in. Had one of the world's best aerosol scientists. He was probably the, had the strongest opinion going in because this is his job. And he was like, well, let me explain aerosols to you. And, um, and then what happened was there was this amazing couple of papers that actually used this uh, laser scattering light chamber thing to actually literally take videos of you know respiratory particles suspended in the air, not suspended, but just they just float in the air. It showed that they float in the air for up to an hour, and it showed that when somebody wears a mask, they don't appear. And that was the point where I went from like curious and interested to a hundred percent convinced, because it'd be like if somebody said like, "I promise you, Lucas, if you throw this ball at that." wall, it won't bounce off. It will go through. And then you'd be like, well, Jeremy, I'm not sure, but I'll give it a go. And you throw the wall <laughs> at the wall and it bounces off. And you go like, Jeremy, I am very sure you're wrong <laughs> about your theorem. And that's how it was with masks. There are people who said like, our oh, masks don't provide respiratory protection from, from these airborne particles. And then here's a video of them not going through the mask. So I was like, okay, that's, I don't need any RCTs. I don't like, it's, 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 it's like, there's a video, it's a picture of it working. So yeah. So then I kind of went all in on just trying to say to people, oh no, there's actually a thing that stops the, the thing that infects us. So we should wear them. Um, and I found it extraordinarily bizarre that everybody didn't just go, oh, look at that video of it working, therefore it works. Um, so it's like a super frustrating experience. Like I don't, there's nothing I enjoy about researching masks and there's nothing I enjoy about political advocacy. You know, the former is boring and the latter is stressful. But when there's something that's so obviously can like save millions of lives and also like can avoid who knows what long-term harm, it just seems absolutely ethically required to, to act on that. And so I, you know, spoke with all kinds of like world leaders and politicians and celebrities and whatever. Um, and in every jurisdiction, it was like this, like a whole new conversation. You know, it's like talking to people in South Africa. And so I go, oh, we don't believe in masks. It's like, Talk to people in London. We don't believe in masks. Talk to people in Australia. We don't believe in masks. Talk to people in Florida. Oh, we don't believe in masks. And like each one, I discovered this horrible thing, which is um, everybody decided they didn't believe in masks until their personal jurisdiction got hit hard by COVID, until the hospitals started filling up. And then they would get back to me and say like, oh, tell me more about this masks thing, Jeremy. And that was like, infuriating because of course the answer is well if you had have put in mask mandates two months ago then this wouldn't have happened and now it's too late because masks can reduce r by a bit but not enough to reverse a full-on pandemic once it's there so honestly it you know i got really burned out by the process like it was like in some ways it was successful but in the end the pandemic still happened and in the end, I'm still 
yeah, flabbergasted, particularly now that like high quality medical masks are like widely available. Demand is so low that factories have been shutting down, you know. Um, so yeah, I've I've never had COVID. Like literally nobody I know who has worn a high quality mask at all times indoors. No, none of them have got COVID, you know. And everybody I know who doesn't have all had COVID. Yeah, there's a point at which you just kind of say like, okay, I I've done what I can, <laughs> you know. You do you. Do you so you continue to wear a mask indoors at of course at all times? yeah, and I guess what would change when when would you stop wearing a mask uh, indoors? I mean, I suspect like it's the same as the answer question when I when would I stop drinking clean water? I'd rather keep drinking clean water, mm. you know. And just like we we decided, I mean, remember it took decades, um, even after the Jon Snow experiment, to for, you know, big cities to decide to invest in clean water infrastructure. So uh, presumably after some number of years, we will invest in clear air infrastructure. So China's already done it. They now have, I believe, HIPAA filters in pretty much all their public building buildings, and they're putting in UV sterilization in pretty much all their public buildings. <laughs> so hopefully at some point the West will do the same thing, and then uh, it'll be like, okay, I'm in an environment with clean air, um, so I don't have to, like, self-clean the air. So that'd be one option. Another would be, again, China's ahead of us on this. They have nasal vaccines, which, you know, probably much more effective. Um, so if we eventually get those and, you know, I think they can actually make a significant dent on transmission, um, which the injected vaccines don't make much of a big impact on transmission. So yeah, there are technologies that should allow us to be able to be, I think, pretty safe in indoor spaces. Um, but but you don't wear masks in an outdoor space. That is that the no no. I mean, not I wouldn't. It's not exactly a hard and fast rule. You know, we went to a birthday party recently, for example, where it was like a karaoke thing, and it was outdoors, but all the kids were singing and they were tightly packed and whatever. So our family wore a mask because there's a high amount of aerosolizing activities going on with a high density of people. But uh, but yeah, broadly speaking, um, I would I'm not too concerned about outdoors because the um, the airborne particles disperse much more quickly. I see. So I guess the interesting thing about that story maybe is that there maybe was a fairly broad scientific consensus, but no one was really ready to advocate for it. That is that is that a better summary of, of what was happening? If you got all these scientists together and they actually all agreed with. Um, what you were saying. They, they didn't, unfortunately. What happened was it was highly polarized by, um, by area. So the people that actually understood this are the aerosol scientists. And the aerosol science community was basically 100% all on the same page of like, okay, you know, talking, breathing, these are aerosolizing activities. We have loads of evidence that this is transmitted through aerosols. We have loads of evidence that um, in the in the uh, droplet nuclei, you know, that are suspended in the air, masks block those from getting to your lungs. Um, like all those were pretty much understood in that community. But then the the challenge is, Lucas, that we haven't had a major respiratory pandemic in the West really since the Spanish flu. 
So none of our infectious disease community has any background in, in that. So I spent a lot of time advocating, you know, including speaking directly to the WHO's infection control groups so of the folks that, you know, kind of ran the response at the WHO. And they were overwhelmingly people who had a background in um, infectious diseases that were spread through contact, you know, the kind of stuff that hand washing helps with. So they were just coming from a, from a totally different direction and had decades of experience on treating different kinds of diseases in a different way. Um, and they were doing their best to learn and understand. Um, but for some, that was a very difficult experience. And, and one in particular, John Connolly, like his financial stake was very high in this fomite, you know, transfer. This like, transmission is not through the air, but by contact because... You know, he has financial interests in that being the case. Um, so very difficult for him to come to terms with the idea that this is a respiratory infection through respiratory particles requiring respiratory protection. Um, so yeah, that was that was a big challenge is this uh, worldview difference between different scientific groups. And the aerosol scientists, there were actually none of them on the WHO's infection protection committee, you know, uh, or infection control, whatever it was. Um, so it, it, it was a, I noticed when I was talking to WHO, it was a total lack of diversity. Every single one had the same kind of academic background and the same way of thinking about things. And they all knew each other very well. And they were also, they also all saw being on, being involved in the WHO as being a very strong status signal in their career. So everybody wants to be invited to those kinds of things. And so you really want to like have all the other people on the committee think you're a good, nice person. And so it creates this real monoculture. So that was another big part of the problem. And it was all like, it, it, it definitely made me a lot more cynical than I was before it to see like how the WHO works and even like our big paper, like how to get it published. It took a year from being written to being published. So by the time it was published, it was basically too late. Um, and the process of getting it published was much more about politics than about science, you know. Um, and it was, yeah, disappointing for me to discover that systems that I had thought of as being like very much focused on rationality and data and correctness and rigor yeah, so much of it turned out to be about about politics and networks and stuff. So I guess I was probably pretty naive before all that happened. I mean, I guess my sense is that people broadly believe that masks reduce the spread of COVID at this point. I mean, I I'm not sure that I know like exactly to what degree. It sounds like you know you're saying to like a really massive um, degree, but I think you I think you had a part in that. Or maybe just maybe I just follow you on Twitter and <laughs> we're just watching you talk about it. But it, I don't know. It does yeah, seem no, I mean, like I, it's the I, mainstream. I, I, I was leading the masks are all group globally, like, and we were the most substantive group doing that. Absolutely. It, I mean, it I, feels like it was successful, though. I mean, I, I just it was not... successful-ish. Like, I think it's. I mean, if you're in San Francisco, it'll look more than successful than if you're in Australia, for example. In Australia. From time to time, we've had mask mandates and everybody wears them when they're told to. The rest of the time, it's strongly recommended, but nobody does. Um, but like at San Francisco, I'm told like, I don't know, maybe 
30% of kicks at schools. So some schools are wearing them. Um, like it's definitely like it's, 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 it's disappearing. Um, and also like people on a lot of people, maybe most people I see wearing masks, at least in Australia are wearing masks that don't work very well, even though the good masks are really easy to get. And, um, a lot of people don't realize like, oh, if you get a high quality N95 respirator, you can wear that as many times as you like until the straps wear out. You know, a lot of people think, oh, you can only wear it once. A lot of people think it has to be fit tested. Like there's all, a lot of people think it's like donning and doffing is some complicated thing. Yeah. There's all this like wrong information out there. And so the number of people actually wearing high quality masks is to me, it's surprisingly low. Like if everybody wore one whenever they were indoors, you know, particularly if we also had HIPAA filters in indoor spaces, I suspect we would be done with the virus and it would go away because how would a respiratory virus continue to transmit when you break the flow of respiratory particles? Uh, yeah. I mean, even in China, like every, all the pictures I see, everybody's wearing surgical masks. I'm just like, weird to me. Interesting. Well, look, we're almost out of time and we always end with two questions, but you're a little bit of an unusual guest. So I don't know exactly how well these will fit your um, worldview, but um, we like to, I like to ask people if you had some extra time um, to research something completely different, what might it be? And I feel like you are just like a unending font of this stuff. So <laughs> what are some things that you're interested in that you haven't had time to look into? Well, I'll answer a slightly different question because like anytime I'm interested in researching something, I just do. Um, Fair so enough. the most recent thing I spent a lot of time researching, uh, is, is, uh, children's education. Um, so, uh, so our daughter missed the first year of school because of COVID in San Francisco, they were closed. Um, that would have been her kind of transitional kindergarten year as they call it in California. And then we came to Australia and so she went to school, regular school for the first year here, um, and she was straight into grade one and she, she enjoyed it. You know, she was always happy to go and happy to stay there, but it felt like she had like blossomed a lot more during her previous year when she was doing stuff over Zoom and on apps and stuff than the year that she was in person in the classroom, which really surprised me. And uh, instead she had become much more of a perfectionist and was becoming like much less resilient after her year at physical school. And that all seemed really weird to me because I thought that environment would be much more healthy than the previous one. So I started, yeah, I started investigating it really carefully and studying a lot of academic papers about education. And, um, I was just stunned to discover that. Yeah, there's kind of like pretty broad consensus in parts of the academic community or some very strong data that suggests like schools are not a particularly great place for most kids to to really blossom or at least entirely focus on school learning. And in fact, tutoring, kids that do tutoring, get tutoring are um, like in the very top highest academic performers, regardless of their previous background. Like it seems like all kids can be really successful given the right tutoring. And that like, because our daughter was doing all this stuff with like apps and on Zoom and stuff during her first year, 
none of that is limited by the speed at which a teacher thinks a kid should, should go, but instead the computer is dynamically adjusting difficulty over time. So weirdly enough, our daughter did, you know, was basically at grade four or grade five of math after a few months of doing these apps. You know, they're so much more effective than normal teaching. So we're also trying to figure out like, well, how do you, how do you avoid her getting really bored and stuff? So yeah, so I did this really deep dive into into education and discovered there's all these like fascinating different ways of, of teaching and learning, which are entirely different to what's done at normal schools. Um, so eventually, yeah, we, we decided to take her out of school and, you know, instead switch to using these kind of more academically driven approaches in a homeschooling environment, which also seemed to generally lead to better social outcomes, you know, better mental outcomes. Uh, mental mental health outcomes and better learning outcomes, and so again, that's kind of been interesting to me to discover this like whole world of research that seems really important, you know, for humanity. Um, how to how kids should learn, and yeah, it feels like again it's being largely ignored by the institutions that we send our kids to. Um, and so wait, let me just summarize and see if I got the, the summary of this. Basically that tutors are much more effective than schools at actually teaching kids things. Is that is that what you said? That would be part of it. I mean, and the, and then specific and but I mean there's lot, lots of So yeah, that's kind of one starting point. It's like, yes, even you know, even kids that would otherwise have been doing pretty badly at school can be in the very top performers. Um so like that kind of is an existence proof that pretty much all kids can be extremely successful. Um, but then there's this also this kind of, yeah, interesting data point for us, which is when we kind of gave our daughter an iPad and some, you know, math and reading apps and somebody on the other end of a Zoom to supervise them. She had a huge amount of fun and learned dramatically more quickly than I thought was possible. And then when she actually went to school, she basically learned nothing for the whole year and ended up becoming much less resilient. And then that, yeah, that there, there are specific ways of learning that are not particularly compatible with the normal ways we teach at school. So for example, um, we, we might've talked before about like Anki and repetitive spaced learning, you know, so my daughter does Anki every day. So like literally everything she learns she will remember forever if she put, you know, she creates a card for it, if she decides she wants to know it. Um, so yeah, so like I, it's, and that's kind of quite difficult to do at a normal school because you'd need all of your grade levels to be doing Anki so that in grade five, you're still got cards from grade one or grade two coming back. Um, but what happens at school is like each year. So for example, in Australia, the year seven and year eight math curriculums are nearly entirely a refresh of the primary school curriculum because um, they kind of assume the kids are going to need to see it again because they've probably forgotten a lot of it. Things like how would you incorporate spaced repetitive learning. Some schools in England have tried to do something like that using something they call retrieval practice. And um, so I know there's a school called the Michaela School, which I believe had the highest results academically in the whole country. They do something like this. So there's a few, you know, there's a handful of schools here and there which are trying to use these kind of research results. 
but they're, yeah, they're kind of the odd ones out. All right. And I guess like, finally, I don't know if this one really applies to you. We usually ask because, you know, that my company and this interview is all about sort of like making machine learning really work in the real world. We usually ask like, like kind of what's a hard part that you've encountered in sort of like taking something from research to um, actually working for some purpose. And that may not exactly apply to you, but you seem very good at sort of interpreting my questions in a useful way. So I pose it in its most abstract form. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, um, yeah, I've had lots of projects that I've tried to bring into the real world. Of course, um, of course. That's right. Yeah. So, and it's difficult, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I, I, I've been doing machine learning projects for over 25 years now, believe it or not. Um, and in the early days, you know, it was such a challenge because managers didn't believe in the power of data at all. And when I would try to tell them that it could be really valuable, they would always say, like, can you point to a role model of a company that's been successful because of their use of data? And there were none, you know, and that was tough. Yeah, amazing. And then Google came along, which was great. You know, because then I could point at this one company that was like really working hard to use data and they've become very valuable because of it. Nowadays, that bit's a lot easier. Um, but actually, um, unfortunately, it's my answer is going to be that I've kind of, for, for a lot of companies, I've given up on even trying because I tried to get, particularly when I was at Singularity University, where all of our students were basically execs from giant companies. And we were trying to convince them to be more data focused and some of them really took that on board and then they would like invite me to come and talk to their VP groups and exec groups and and I saw lots of yeah big companies try to get more data driven, try to use machine learning. Um, I didn't see any being successful and um, that the issue seemed to be that their entire management teams were people who, who's, that was not their area of expertise. They were not promoted because they were good at that. Um, they would have very smart data-driven people down in their kind of business analyst levels, but they would have no idea which ones knew what they were talking about and have no way to kind of curate what they were being told. All of the promotion systems were, you know, based on experience and credentialing and things other than analytical capabilities. So yeah, so like in, in those kinds of companies, I, I, I eventually decided like, okay, maybe it's not possible for a legacy company to become a data-driven company. And so nowadays I focused all of my attention on startups um, created by founders that are already data-driven and, you know, have a good understanding of analysis. And what we're seeing is like, you know, increasingly the most valuable companies or particularly the most valuable companies in America, they're basically all now tech startups. I mean, they're not startups anymore, but they're all companies that are created by kind of engineers and data-driven people. Um, so I'd kind of, yeah, I think for like data scientists interested in making an impact, the best thing to do would be to try and make sure you're at a company where that kind of work is appreciated and understood by the executive team. Yeah. Interesting. Well, great to talk to you. Uh, 
that was super fun. Thanks for you too, Lucas. answering my wide range of questions. Yeah. Always, my pleasure. It's, it's always so inspiring to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. If you're enjoying these interviews and you want to learn more, please click on the link to the show notes in the description where you can find links to all the papers that are mentioned, supplemental material, and a transcription that we work really hard to produce. So check it out. And how is everything going at Weights and Biases? I always hear nothing but good things about it. Everybody loves it. I got to say, I got to admit, actually, the other day I was like talking to my friend, I think it was Tanishk, about like, oh, what's going on with this learning rate here? I wonder if it's working properly. And then he's like, oh, well, here's a graph of the learning rate. I was like, oh, that was quick and great. Where did that come from? And he's like, weights and biases. Uh, it yes. locks it. And I'm oh, just man, like, oh, are you still recording? Put that on the... <laughs> I probably should have looked at the weights and biases <laughs> team. Here I was with like plot dot plot x equals. And he's already got it pasted into the Discord chat. All right. Well, that made my day. Thanks. Cheers, mate. <laughs>